John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 138.JE1316, certificate number 7505. The bodies of Mount Everest. They reached the Hillary Step, a 40-foot wall of exposed rock. Climbers maneuver up the cracks and over the rocky outcrop while clipped into the fixed ropes. Only one climber can ascend at a time. This is where bottlenecks occur. They silently pass by the body of a climber from an earlier expedition who died here on the ropes. Happy New Year, John. Did I say Happy New Year to you ever? I don't know if I did. Hmm. No. You have never said it to me in all of our long years of association. Well, I feel like for most of that time I had some cover because it was February to December. The vast majority of that time. Oh, I see what you're and saying. And I should not be saying Happy New Year to you most of the time. But it's weird for you to be saying it now, given that we have seen each other multiple, multiple times since the New Year. And also that this is like a, you know, there's literally no chance that our listeners observe the same kind of, I mean, they observe the solar year, but do they think a week and a half after the solstice is the new year? Probably not. Seems strange. Are they listening to it a week and a half after the solstice? Almost certainly not. Seems strange to me. Seems strange even in our own time that now a month and a half after the celebration of both the solstice and the new year, it occurs to you to wish me happy new year. I'm just wondering if 2019 is going to be the year you climb Everest. What do you think? So when I was young, I did a small bit of mountaineering. I have climbed some summits. Alaska or Cascades? In or? Alaska. Not roped in or anything. Although I've done rope climbing too. Rock climbing. You have you done? Know. Yeah. You've done technical climbing with... Um, crampons and never do you, have, do you have the axes never crampons i've been on ice fields uh, i've been on ice fields where i wasn't roped in so a couple of scary ice fields in fact and a lot of just sort of shale scrambling so anyway I, i'm not completely unfamiliar with the universe i know a lot of climbers but i you never thought to yourself i have i could climb rainier i could climb so, in fact, Rainier has come up in conversation between me and a couple of friends as a thing to do now that we're in middle age, a thing to do to test our mettle and to get in shape and to, you know, in fact, a friend of mine suggested that this was the year we should climb Rainier. Because we live just a couple hours away. And it is a test that feels accomplishable by an amateur, 
but certainly is a major climb and a dangerous one. I understand that American mountaineers training for Everest often use Rainier because of the similarity of the terrain, I guess. Yeah. So you never know. That could be your jumping off point. Not literally, I hope. Mount McKinley. Yeah, right. If you're going to jump off of something, I think Rainier, that's an awful lot of extra work. (laughs) <laughs> to go up there just to jump There's off. probably an overpass on the way you could use. Also, I don't know if jumping off would do that much good. Yeah, you'd just... You'd turn into a big snowball. Sure, slide. As you rolled. Mount McKinley, or Denali, Yeah, in thank you. <clears throat> thank you, John. <laughs> um, so recently, the federal government finally switched over. The guy in Ohio that was adding McKinley, William McKinley's legacy to every appropriations bill has finally... I don't know what, Relented threw, or, threw himself off a mountain. Uh, yeah, for so all of my life, it was called Denali National Park. Not all of my life, in fact. But they honored the native name for it, Denali. My impression is that Alaskans were more likely to use the native name, even while down here, everyone was just saying, oh, Mount McKinley, that's the highest point. But the mountain was still called McKinley. You guys but, would never call the mountain Denali. Uh, well, no, we always called it Denali. <laughs> Uh, because because that Get was your story straight, uh, but but the mountain like like you were saying in the federal like yes. it, it was it, on maps and it retained the name Mount McKinley even though the, it was Denali National Park because of this one dingbat in Ohio and a lot of who was afraid that we were going to forget forget President <laughs> William McKinley like what what did he sacrifice for by getting shot at a World's Fair if he's now no longer on a map of a place that didn't even wasn't even a part of the U.S. when he was a well Denali means the Great One. And McKinley was the great one. We all we all call him. Remember when Muhammad Ali one. was calling himself the greatest, and a lot of sportscasters were like, "That's William McKinley, Muhammad, sir." How can you call yourself the great one when William McKinley was clearly the great one? The the little town of Talkeetna. Talkeetna um, is the base camp for a sense of McKinley. It's a little or Denali or Denali. Sorry, it ain't just a river in Alaska, John. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a little town. Sort of down on a, on a river. It has a, a couple of airstrips, and it's the staging ground. It's not the base camp. It's the staging ground. And from there, you would take a small uh, ski plane up and be deposited at the true base camp at the bottom of a glacier. And so a lot of the pilots, all of the pilots there in McKinley run the, this service, this taxi service, to and from the mountain. And I know a few of those pilots. One of them, Cliff Hudson, was our the pilot that would take us up to a, a friend's mountain cabin. And so anyway, yeah, uh, climbing people and climbing gear. I'm not unfamiliar with it, but I never felt, I felt like McKinley maybe was a thing I should consider. Denali. <laughs> consider doing. No one's going to be able to see me lean into the mic <laughs> every time you say McKinley and then wait a second and then say Denali. It's very funny. Uh, it's very funny theater that you're doing here, but it's just for my benefit. That's why we do the show, John. <laughs> like, so far, nobody's figured out the prank that this is just a Truman Show thing for you. We never actually release this. I mean, it's doable. Like, even Everest now is just dentists and teachers and engineers who climb on weekends and are like, you know what? I'm going to do Everest. I, th- I, I think it's as it becomes more doable, it becomes less impressive and feels less... Uh, you missed your chance. Well, or or just... It's like getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame before they let in Harold Baines. Whatever desire I would have to do it is the same desire that a lot of these people have to do it. And as you see it reflected <laughs> in their sort of greedy no, eyes... I am that orthodontist. <laughs> you say, oh, I don't want to do this for any reason other than just really to bag it, to put it on my little... Um, 
Because it's there. List of rewards, right? I'm not moved to do it like some climbers who are motivated by, animated by some spirit I cannot, I do not possess and, and cannot inhabit. It's hard to say what that is, but they're certainly risking something to climb. Uh, in the 20th century, you know, after Edmund Hillary first scaled Everest. Well, now wait, I'm going to stop you right there. After Edmund Hillary first scaled and returned from Everest, but it's, there's... It's possible that Mallory got to the top. I, I'm, I'm team Mallory. I think he got there in 1924, and 25 years went by before the next Westerner attempted it. I believe that several alien craft landed there in the Victorian era. Um, but now did, you're but, just But being, did they walk down? You're just being funny. After uh, Mallory and or Hillary, somebody whose name ends with Lurie climbed Mount Everest. That was the original law. Your name had to end with Lurie or you couldn't go up. Uh, That's why John Lurie, uh, his yeah, amazing he, television show. He wants to go fish on Mount Everest. <laughs> climbing with John. 14.5% uh, of all people who climbed Everest in the 20th century did not How survive. How many? 14%. So one in six. It's essentially you're playing Nepalese roulette. Wow. When you climb One in Mount six people who attempted the summit did not return. And it's down today. You know, it's down to like 2% today. We have better gear. Um, we can forecast, forecasting the weather is huge because of so many people who die of exposure in bad conditions. I mean, in the early days, like Mallory famously was climbing in tweed. <laughs> like tweed. We now know that tweed is not the best <laughs> fabric. Tweed doesn't wick away moisture. <laughs> um, but even, uh, even Hillary, his gear was. He was just wearing chinos and a uh, polo. Yeah, like it's it's the, it's the same gear that, that people now wear to football games, right? It's like north-faced puffy jacket. That was incredibly technical climbing gear. I have to say when I'm wearing some kind of puffy jacket, I do feel like a real rugged outdoorsman though. Yeah. Maybe I was born in the wrong time. What about you? Do you feel a desire to summit Everest or, or do any of these landmark adventures? I've never, I like, I've never done any technical climbing, although... Um, you know, I enjoy kind of the little scrambles I've done on hikes or whatever, but I think maybe I'll climb Kilimanjaro. That's the one you can walk up. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it's still, it's an incredibly high stratovolcano. You really feel like you've accomplished something, but you were just walking up in a crowd of people. It's like a three-day field trip, basically. You can drive to the top of Pikes Peak. I should just do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plant your flag. What am I thinking? <laughs> when self-driving cars are invented, I'm going to be the first self-driving car to get to the top of Pike's Peak. Now you've done the rich guy uh, adventure of going to Antarctica, the have you not? The RGA? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really an adventure either. I mean, it's, it's the same as any other cruise, except the boat is not as nice and the weather is not as nice. Right. But you do feel like you've, mathematically, you've accomplished something few people have. Galapagos? Have you done the Galapagos? I kind of want to. Yeah, um, it's another rich guy adventure. The scenery in Antarctica is really worth it. You're not just checking off a list. You really are seeing very, very dramatic terrain and incredibly blue ice and sawtooth, jagged Lovecraftian mountains. It's great. But Everest seems like it would take a lot of work. Oh, yeah. But it can't be that hard. So a 13-year-old has climbed Mount Everest. A 76-year-old has climbed Mount Everest. A double amputee has climbed Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Double, is it one arm, one leg? No, I think he'd lost both legs. He was a... He was a New Zealander who, in recent memory, obviously that's not a thing you could have done in 1960, but now with a support team and with uh, super good aesthetic. I, I couldn't do it today. I have two legs. 
I mean, that's true. Obviously, first step. Well, we could arrange to lose. <laughs> we could make that arrangement. I know a guy. Uh, it does cost around twenty five thousand dollars per person, so we need to get you a Kickstarter if you were seriously thinking. About How did this switch back to me? I, I I've decided a long time ago I do not want to go to the top of Everest. I also do not. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna plant my flag right now I've on been. the top of. <laughs> get it up there. Not going to Everest. <laughs> It's 29,000 feet. Our uh, future audience may not be aware because they probably have a different name for it. But and they don't use feet. <laughs> and, and it's the only dry land on earth, like in Waterworld. So that's 10,000 uh, meters. Yes. It's uh, the highest point on earth. And it's cl- I think it's close to the theoretical high point for earth. There's a thing with mountains where there's an equilibrium involved. As the mountain gets heavier, taller and taller, it also gets more and more massive and therefore pushes down on the crust fluid. Yeah, the fluid below the crust. Really? Yeah, so the base of the mountain will, will go down as the mountain gets bigger. I mean, Mars has bigger mountains, but they have less gravity. So there's a theoretical maximum altitude of yeah. Earth. And it's a range. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe, and this is all just an engineering problem, right? You get some suburban dad in there and he'll be like, oh yeah, you just need to shore this up. Yeah, shore it up. You need some joists on this mountain. <laughs> you can get a hundred more feet out of this. Or like me and my, my fence out front here as it started, as some of the fence posts started to get a little wobbly. As will happen in the and, Northwest. And so I just uh, took some other boards and crammed them into the ground and propped the fence back up. But I concealed those boards behind bushes. So the fence continues to look <laughs> extremely stable and well, solid. Well, in this case, the, you'd be hidden by Mount Everest. Yeah, right. Let's get some two by fours in here. Uh, we can do this. Do it for, uh, you know, you're not allowed to access it from the Chinese side, so they might be propped up from over there. <laughs> it's actually not real. It's just a flat mountain like a like in a Western or something. You get to the top, and that's why 20% of the people die or whatever, 14%. They look over the They're edge. They're the ones that see the Chinese um, guys holding up the entire mountain. Uh, it's, uh, it was not, even though it's very big, hard to miss, one would think, it was not known to be the highest mountain on earth for centuries, not till 1852 when the British, uh, Raj surveyed. mapped and surveyed the Himalayas. There's actually a funny kind of hidden figures thing where they had all these measurements that they had taken, but then they had like rooms full of Indian guys doing the math on, on the trigonometry. You know, today you just punch it into a calculator, but they needed months to oh. actually run all the numbers for all the triangles they had measured in the elevations. That is um, such a British empire thing right. to do. And also- <laughs> No problem. We got a room full of, uh, of Indian guys. Also at that moment, maybe the idea that there was a tallest mountain on earth. Do you think it hadn't occurred to anyone? First occurred to people, right? Wait I mean, a second. Because it was the first time that you, uh, that uh, humankind really surveyed the globe. Right. Up until then, there's some idea that it's it's out there somewhere, but who knows where. Right. A vast, unexplored southern continent, some island, the Andes. They don't know An where An island is. of Dr. Moreau, for instance. Probably. Because yeah. the island of Dr. Moreau, most famous for the having, a tall, uh, having a tall mountain. <laughs> tallest mountain in the world. <laughs> like there's also a guy there making human-animal hybrids, a very fat man making animal hybrids, but nobody even notices because there's this giant mountain rising from the palm trees. So it was actually a room full of Indian guys who first did the math and came back and said, this peak is the highest on earth. You know, back then it was peak 160XY or whatever. Sure. Um, and they ran the numbers and it was exactly 29,000 feet. Seems a little convenient. Andrew Waugh, the surveyor general, was like, run these numbers again. This, the, the, you know, we don't do that in the British Empire. Let's be precise. And they're like, no, it's 29,000 feet. So Waugh, knowing that he would be seen as a slacker if he published this suspicious-looking number, 
you know, even though there's one in a thousand odds of having right. your mountain in with three zeros, he published it as 29,002 feet fraudulently. <laughs> he is sometimes called the first man to put two feet on the top of Mount Everest. Oh, that's nice. Which he did from his office. You know, I used to do that when I was uh, forging my work <laughs> in geometry class. I would always... Every year on April 15th, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're adding a few numbers for the IRS. He could have called it Mount Wa, I suppose, but he was uh, that kind of ego not befitting a surveyor general of India. Right. So he named it after his predecessor, Sir George Everest. Ah, good sport. Good show. Good show, Andrew. It's still growing, by the way. It's growing at a rate of four millimeters a year. Because of tectonic action? It do, it's not volcanic. It's just people bringing stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's just like empty everybody wants bags. Everybody wants to stand higher than Hillary did, so they'll put a rock up and stand on it and be like, hey, you suckers didn't stand on this rock. So and then some other guy will get a bigger rock. You're telling like, me the top of Everest is covered with milk crates. <laughs> there actually is a litter problem atop Mount Everest, as, as we will see. But no, the four millimeters a year is just yeah, tectonic uplift, the Indian subcontinent plate, whatever that's called, is crashing into Asia. And that's what made the... Himalayas and the Karakorams to begin with. I'm right. kind of steepling my hands here to indicate. You are. What, does that help? Do you uh, understand better than? Uh, I do. And now I should be giving color commentary <laughs> to our futurelings. At I'm, this uh, point, Ken, Ken is pushing <laughs> his fingers together. Ken is using his two sort of mandibular uh, <laughs> finger hands. Your mantis claws cannot do this, but my fingers are quite flexy. <laughs> so I push them together straight, but then they yeah. kind of curve up like the they roof do. of a pagoda. They do. You're showing tectonic plate action. And that's how Mount Everest formed. Um, so, you know, 100,000. And that concludes. <laughs> so 100,000 years hence, or, you know, 1,000 years hence, Everest will be four millimeters. Would meters you say, taller. Would you say ages and ages hence? Ages and ages hence, Everest could be quite a bit taller. And it's growing faster than erosion, so that's nice for it. Sort of like my uh, my 401k. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Depends on how much you're, uh, you're taking out this just year. growing slightly more than erosion. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout are you aware of the stuff about how although everest is the highest mountain on earth it is not necessarily the tallest this is because, well, the tallest is like uh, the island of Hawaii. Right? Yeah, Mauna Kea. I mean, if you measure from the base, the island of Hawaii is just one big volcano. If you start at the seafloor where the, where the mountain does, it's 33,000 feet tall. And it's, and it's doing what I said. It's pushing the crust down just miles, but it's almost 10,000 feet higher than Mount Everest. It just, you know, it started from the bottom like big. 
this is a thing that uh, that occurs an awful lot in the penile dysfunction uh, community. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. Get me up to speed on the PDC. <laughs> they, what, uh, what are you guys talking about this trying, week? <laughs> they're trying to decide whether to measure it from the base or measure it from the surface. Everest is the girthiest <laughs> mountain in the Karakoram Range. But do you know there's also a case for Chimborazo in the Andes? Do you know this one? No. The peak of Chimborazo actually extends further into space than the peak of Mount Everest. Because why? Why would that be, John Roddick? Further you have, into you space. have 60 seconds. Good uh, luck. Further into space. Uh, oh, because of the, uh, the uh, ovoid nature of the Earth. That is correct. Yay! The Earth is a giant egg that at some point will hatch and Kim Kardashian will come out. Right. No, it's a little bulgier at the equator because it's been spinning and, uh, you know, over geologic time, it's essentially like a fluid. And just like when you feel yourself get pushed out on a merry-go-round, the, the poles flatten, the equator bulges out. And Chimborazo is just a few miles from the equator. So even though it's right. a mere 20,000 feet, it actually it gets closer to the International Space Station than Everest does by uh, hardly anything, oh, by, really? uh, by, by a mere 7,000 feet. How comparable is it to Everest if you just measure it from the base? It's, it's like 10,000 feet lower. It's... 10,000 feet lower, but actually 7,000 feet more protuberant. Yes, 7,000 feet further into space, more in danger of bumping a, a very low-flying satellite. That's I mean, not how atmosphere works, but yes. Right. Also, that's, <laughs> that would be like a, a commercial plane would be flying at that level, not a, not a very low-flying satellite. Yeah, all of this is, uh, the, these heights are apprehendable to us because this is all about where the cruising altitude of a a transcontinental sure. jet is 30,000 looking feet. out the window of your 777. That's the, that's the same view you would get if Mount Everest existed in Nebraska, right? It just rose from the cornfields. You would look down and see this. Is that true? Because what, I mean, what is the base altitude of uh, Everest? Although Nebraska is also pretty high. It's like a mile high for much of it or for part of it. Base camp of Everest is extremely high. It's roughly 17,000 feet. I see. So you're, you are climbing 12,000 feet. It ain't right. nothing. But um, yeah, you're not starting at the ocean. I wonder if anyone's ever done that. Just wade ashore in the Bay of Bengal and walk up to the highest point on Earth. Start at sea level or start at the Dead Sea. Start at the lowest point on Earth. Walk across Central Asia. And then if you're not tired, just climb Everest. You have just set a new goal for all these orthodontists start at the dead sea and walk to the top of everest go for a dip in the dead sea well so what you have you, what you've brought up here is the is partly what makes denali such an impressive mountain because denali is 18,000 feet from its base whereas everest is only 12,000 feet from its base so when you look at denali mckinley mckinley it does like you're like you say, kind of come up from the ground, from the Nebraskan ground and just loom. Kilimanjaro style. And so- The it, Lion King music plays. Yeah. <laughs> when you stand anywhere within a hundred miles of Denali and look up at it, it fills your entire vision from well, periphery to periphery. Whereas, can you remember just some amazing photo of Everest, the highest mountain on earth? I mean, well, you, you can't because it's- surrounded by other high mountains. It looks unremarkable. Every picture of Everest just looks like it's in the Alps or something. It's very jaggedy, mm -hmm. which is impressive looking. And that's, that's a lot of the danger of it. I mean, getting back to all these uh, casualties. Yeah, let's get back to the casualties. At least three. I mean, it's, it's not the 
the brightest side of summiting Everest, but it's something climbers have to grapple with because 300 people have died doing it. And it's, there's been at least one death every year, every climbing season since 1978. So it's the, a continuous problem on the peak. What is the big mountain right next to Everest? Uh, yeah, that's called, uh, Everest two. <laughs> Electric boogaloo. Are you looking at a picture of Everest and you're yeah. like, what's this? Yeah. There's like Everest. And then there's a mountain right next to it, which is also really tall. It's like, they look like the Grand Teton. If it looks taller, you're looking at the wrong mountain. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> we were at the Seattle Science Center once and they've got like this sign saying the world's biggest guitar this way. And my kids run over and they see this guitar standing upright and they're like, wow, the world's biggest guitar. And then Dylan's tiny, he turns his head and he sees a giant one lying on its side, much bigger than the upright one. He's like, wow, and this one's even bigger. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the thing you're seeing might just be, uh, is it like a... A sub peak of well, because you know a lot of mountains you have to decide what's a new summit and what's just a different ridge on the way down. Well, it says here <clears throat> that the mountain next to Everest is called Lahotse, which is the fourth highest mountain in the world. Can you imagine being like a super good mountain, like fourth highest, and yet every day people just pass you up because Everest is right there? Yeah, and there are all these dead bodies on Everest, and how many dead bodies are there on Lahotse? We're not even talking about it. There could be, maybe there's more. I doubt that there's What more. if there's thousands? You're saying there are more than 300? 300 people have died up there. How many are still there? My, uh, so what you're saying is that there are bodies all over Everest, like human bodies. Yes, I think we kind of gave that away in the title. The I mean, bodies of my, well. Where possible, people are brought down, but that's, that's just not easy to do up there. 4,833 people at last count, have climbed Mount Everest. It's, it's no longer so exclusive. How many um, of those are Sherpas who have gone up and down multiple times? Well, that's the thing. Uh, those 4,800 people have climbed Everest 8,300 times. And that's not dentists getting down to the bottom and being like, let's go again, like at Space Mountain. These are people who are in the line of work of climbing Mount Everest. Uh, there's one porter named Kami Rita Sherpa who has summited Everest 22 times. Wow. And that's kind of why... Uh, that's why it's gotten a lot safer because you've got professional help, you know. Um, you can just be a, a graphic designer from Buffalo and you can contact a firm that will tell you how to get up Everest and carry your stuff. Can you imagine being a graphic designer from Buffalo and you're like, I'm climbing this thing and you show up with all your shiny new gear and then you meet this man who has been to the top 22 times. Can you imagine the exchange <laughs> of... That's just in the eyes between the two of you. You think he doesn't look super respectful? <laughs> Is it worth the side eye to get to the top of this mountain? Everybody knows the score, right? Like if the check cleared, right. okay. He's going to make your yak butter and porridge every night and hopefully make sure you don't fall in anything. But the, the dangers are many. I mean, you can die on Everest without doing a thing because the top is in what's called the death zone. Anything Oof. over... Eight, yeah, don't go to the death zone. That, that's what I've always called the fourth month of any of my relationships. <laughs> hey, oh, <laughs> we need some, we need like a, I need an Ed McMahon bell that goes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are right, sir. You are correct, John. <laughs> the death zone is anything above 8,000 meters of altitude where the air gets so thin that um, if you were to stay up there, it would just be a matter of time. Like the top of Everest is located in a place that human life cannot survive. Huh. And there are people that do it without oxygen now, but the secret is to just do it super quick and get down out of the death zone before you start to have altitude sickness. 
because altitude sickness can just make you die from not having enough oxygen, or it can just make you do dumb things like sit down and feel like having a bit of a rest or walk onto a walk into a crevasse that other that you normally would have seen. It just makes you loopy. This is why when uh, they do the thing on the airplanes where they say, in the event of a depressurization, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before helping others. Because you have such a small window of time before you lose your rational ability. And if you don't put the mask on yourself, you'll be trying to help your friend and you'll just lose the plot. And then nobody has a mask. Right, and then you start putting the mask on their head like a hat and then... <laughs> Everyone dies. <laughs> that's how that's how most people die. The FAA says that's how most people die. They're all wearing it as a like, hat. <laughs> At that altitude, you're getting a third the oxygen per breath that you would down here where man is meant to live. And of course, everyone takes bottled oxygen now, but this is something I didn't realize. Bottled oxygen only gives you essentially, it, it may, it's the equivalent of being only 3,000 feet lower. Huh. So if you're at 29,000 feet and you're breathing pure oxygen, it's as if you were 20, at 26,000 feet, which is still not a great situation oxygen-wise because it, no matter how high you make the concentration, that's not the issue. The issue is pressure. Like gas transfer oh. in the lungs just does You're breathing pure oxygen and you're just not getting enough oh, into your tissues. There's literally nothing you can do. And it's an extremely punishing climb. So a lot of the, you know, a lot, you've also got people just facing exhaustion, you're, you're often starting in temperatures that are like above 100 degrees Fahrenheit down in what's called the Western Coombe because apparently the Welsh discovered Mount Everest. <laughs> but by the time you get to the summit, it might be negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Um, and then, you, you know, you're up in the jet stream. So there's like 200 mile per hour winds. Uh, you can expect to lose 10,000, to use, burn 10,000 calories a day up there. Wow. So it's a pretty solid workout. People tend to lose 10 or 20 pounds when they come down off the mountain. So yeah, it's the it's the Himalayan diet, I guess. If you want to lose twenty pounds in twenty nineteen, you just have to climb Everest once. This so the the fastest ascent from the base camp with oxygen is eleven hours from base camp. Yeah, and it was done by uh, Lachpa Gelu Sherpa. Two thousand three. <laughs> I don't think the fastest should be a, a Sherpa. He just left his uh, his orthodontist back behind. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go. The fastest ascent without oxygen is fully twice as long, 20 Jeez. hours, 20 hours to get up there without oxygen. So even, you know, you're going as fast as you can because you know your, your hours are numbered and still you are not making the same progress just because you're physically at the end of your, at your, end of your rope. So there are two base camps, the South Base Camp and the North Base Camp, and these records are different depending uh, on what base camp you're, you're doing. But. The, the routes are, there are many routes up Everest, but the base camps are only like, a, I think a f maybe 500 feet apart in, in altitude. So the total altitude covered is not likely to be that different. Um, Although the difference uh, in the record, yeah. fastest ascent without oxygen from north and south differs by four hours. It must just be a, an easier route from the south. Is that right? From What's the shorter the time? the north. Oh, the north. Yeah. And that's the Chinese side where permissions are more difficult and so forth. Is that right? Yeah. Well, may maybe on the north route, you have to step over fewer frozen bodies of dead climbers. Well, that is a very grisly fact of climbing Everest today because it's getting crowded up there. The fact that 5,000 people have done it means that there's traffic jams now on Everest. Um, there's a very narrow window when you can go. There's maybe three or four days in every May where stuff gets calm enough. So people will sit at base camp waiting for this time in May 
where the winds change and you can actually get up there without these gale force winds. Well, you can only climb within a, a, a one a period of one week a year? Pretty much. Like the, last year, there was a record 11 days when people could climb in May. And that was an amazing season. How do they determine it from the base? How, I mean, how can they tell if it's a good day? Yeah. You just lick your finger and stick it up. <sighs> it you was know, a good day. Uh, there's, well, there's better weather forecasting. Well, that's why people used to die. They would just climb up there and not know how treacherous it was going to be in, in, in an November, hour. <laughs> dressed in tweed. <laughs> this should be fine. So there's so on days when you can go, there are like hour waits. It's like Disneyland. You, you'll stand for an hour at the Hillary Steps, where it's a very narrow passage, waiting for your turn. You can't get a fast pass? <laughs> yeah, there's no <laughs> fast pass yet. Excuse me, uh, can anybody <laughs> scan my phone? I have clear. <laughs> And there's also tons of trash um, because people leave their oxygen bottles and whatnot. Right. So the top of Everest, the route up Everest is now filthy. It's um, Even at our most extreme, we are garbage people. We're garbage people. The, go the government of Nepal is now paying Sherpas $2 per kilo. Per kilo? <laughs> kilo. We're saying that's kilo what, now. That's what they say in the future. <laughs> They've forgotten how to They're pronounce like, vowels. If I'm not saying kilogram, <laughs> I am not saying kilo. Therefore, we're going to standardize on kilogram kilo. kilo. Rhymes with pillow. <laughs> Uh, they get $2 per kilo uh -huh. uh, of trash they bring down. And climbers are actually fined if they don't show up, if they don't come back with a bag full of, of trash, like, oh, really? like Earth Day volunteers. So Nepal is taking the, the problem seriously. And I think China has sent up helicopters and has just brought back just tons and tons of crap. But, but yeah, it's, we're, we're ants on a leaf, basically. We're, mm -hmm. we're destroying the planet because we want to stand on this rock here that's a little higher than that rock there. Well, we're not technically destroying the planet. We're just destroying that rock. <laughs> <laughs> like Lahotse, I'm sure, has no Baby Ruth wrappers. Like, I'm sure it's pristine. So the just to your comment about helicopters, uh, in order to fly a helicopter at those altitudes, it has to be a specially modified high-altitude helicopter. <sighs> I didn't even think about that. There's just not enough air. And high-altitude helicopters can only reach, then these are turbine helicopters. They can only get to 25,000 feet. So you still got 4,000. <clears> they can get the lower part of the climb from base camp. They can get the trash out. But yeah. But ab then above that. And it's dangerous to fly a helicopter at those altitudes. And of course, as we've kind of foreshadowed, the saddest yet signs of human presence up there are human. There are people who did not survive the climb. And, you know, bringing a body back is, is nearly impossible. So best practice up there is to push the body into a crevasse. Like that's, that's the practice. If someone in your expedition doesn't make it, give them a respectful push off the edge. It's like the law of the sea. It's a burial at sea. It's essentially a burial at sea, except the sea is just a deeper hole. And it's, it's really the same reason. We don't want to look at this thing. Um, but if you don't do that immediately, it's a little grisly, but the person essentially becomes part of the mountain, freezing and thawing and weather. And now you cannot remove the human remains. They've Aww. essentially, they've essentially frozen to the stone. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is uh, enough people have died up there in prominent position that they have become landmarks that climbers notice and can even navigate by. So all these orthodontists who are climbing within this weak window in a giant line it are, sounds fun. are lined up and like walking over people who have not made it. In the early 2000s, there was one stretch of the north side that people called Rainbow Ridge. And it was because of the brightly colored parkas and other outerwear worn by those who didn't make it. And there were enough of them that it was decor. 
Whoa. on this portion of the path. Here we are at Rainbow Ridge. So you have to, yeah, you have to literally walk over the bodies of people who did this dangerous thing and did not come back. That's uncool, bro. To me, it would make it less fun. I mean, I can see the argument that that's where you're really reminded of the stakes. Yeah. But but to me, there's nothing fun about any activity where you have to see a bunch of your fellow hobbyists. Well, so each each one of those people who is now marching up with their hand on the shoulder of the person in front of them and with someone behind them with their hand on their shoulder. A Sherpa rolling his eyes. They also, they all have to be thinking, I am superior to these people who died. Or I, I will not succumb to what killed my my predecessor. But right? that's what they thought too. That's, that's what, what that's what all too. those people thought too. I mean, there's because there's so many ways to die on Everest. If you look at the pie chart, it is not overwhelmingly anything. I think maybe uh, avalanche or other kinds of landslide is the leading cause of death. But that's maybe a third of them. It can also be, uh, it could just be a fall. You fall off an edge. You, there's a crevasse you didn't see. It could be exposure. It could be altitude sickness. I mean, there are just so many ways to die up there. People are not meant to be up there. Well, so looking at um, this table. You have a table. I have a table. Uh, Five people died on Everest in 2018, uh, including three Nepalese. Uh, One uh, disappeared, he just disappeared, got snow blindness and gone. You have to wonder how many of the Nepalese who die are actually... um, would have made it if not for the dummies they were with, you know, yeah, like, right. like, like how many of these people were slowed down or, you know, inconvenienced or had to do something because of the dentist. Well, one of the uh, Nepalese died of a stroke. Then a man from, Altitude sickness. Yeah. a man from Macedonia had a heart attack. And then a person from Japan had hypothermia. And then another Nepalese person fell into a crevasse. So as you're saying, there's no single... Sure, it's like, it's like an Indiana Jones trap where every single person is killed by a different uh, booby trap. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing that anybody survives. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So when you start to read into this, you know, when I first started, when I first read about the bodies of Everest, I think it was a BBC story from 2015 that a woman named Rachel Neuer wrote. It's still the best, the best kind of treatment of the phenomenon. You know, I, I first thought of it as kind of a geographical oddity, you know, that dead bodies were now part of a landscape. And, you know, you could essentially map Everest based on you know, all these nameless people. Really? But when you read about it, what you, what you realize is that all these little geographical curios, all these landmarks have backstories, each more tragic than the last. They're all people with families. 
Are you still counting uh, means of death? 2015 was a bad year. Wow, 2014 too. Oh, wow. In 2014, can this be true? Every single person who died in 2014, and it's not a small list, they were all Nepalese and they were all killed in an avalanche. Must have been the same avalanche. Yeah, it's one expedition there. Um, well, no, there was multiple multiple expeditions, but I guess there must have been a terrible avalanche that that year because I wonder if the crowds are contributing. You know, when you when you think about how many people are up there now compared to in the past, like right. that, that's what that's can shake loose rock and snow. Right? Whether, yeah, whether they precipitate an avalanche. Yeah, like you know, one guy kicks a bit of gravel down the trail and thousand feet down. Right. A bunch of Sherpas never, never come back. Well, you're, you're often roped to other people. So this used to happen on Denali all the time. Somebody would lose their footing and they would take a whole party down. They're all tied together. Jeez. Take them off a cliff. I mean, think about the, the brief feeling of guilt and responsibility. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> so these, when you read about the bodies that are up there, many of them still have nicknames. Um, because they're not faceless nameless people. They're all They were all of... actual climbers. And there's a community of people who, who might have known them. Uh, climbers on the north face of Everest have a corpse they call Sleeping Beauty, hmm. which is the very sad story of an American woman named Frances Arsentia. She was the first American woman ever to climb Everest with no oxygen. But on her descent, she and her husband had summited very late in the day and did not have time to get back down. They had to spend another night in the death zone. And they became separated. And when he, her husband, Sergei, made his way down to camp, she wasn't there. So he panics and heads back up with oxygen. But it was too late. Uh, an Uzbek team had found her near the summit, suffering from exposure, frostbite, hypothermia, and oxygen deprivation. You know, she couldn't move on her own, so they tried to give her oxygen, uh, but they were becoming too fatigued. They had to get out of the death zone, too. It's the, it's the put your mask on yourself first problem. You know, so they stay with her as long as they can, but she's saying, don't leave me, don't leave me, and they, they have to get back down to their camp. And they pass Sergei headed back up, and that's the last time either of them are ever seen alive. Um, so for almost a decade, she remained there exactly as she was last seen by this Uzbek expedition, just, you know, lying on her side, clipped to a guide rope. Visible to every person who summited. Snow comes and goes, rocks come and go. So sometimes people will think a body's gone and then somebody will see it the next season. But yeah, in general, visible to every single person taking this route. And, you know, this is a 40-year-old mom with a young son at home. Um, in 2007, this British climber named Ian Woodall, who had been with that last expedition that stayed with her as long as she could, you know, evidently this had been eating at him. So he actually returned to Everest with the goal of, you know, you can't say recovering her body, but there's no nice way to say it, of just pushing it off the path, you know, like his mission was to do the most respectful thing he could, which was to push a body into a crevasse. Um, seems like that could go wrong a lot of different ways. I think, you know, I think the, the best case, you know, what he wanted to do is maybe to build a cairn, you know, under a, a pile of rocks on top of her. And when he found he couldn't do it because of four feet of snow, he was able to wrap her body in a flag and have a brief ceremony and then just lower it off a cliff, burial at sea. So of all the, say. of all the people, um, 
up there, he just had a personal connection to her and decided to, I mean, because she was very, very close to the summit. So he decided to summit Everest again, effectively, just to pay her body. He didn't know her personally before. No, except for that, those few hours he spent with her as she was dying. But that, I mean, that's how you know that even though these accounts kind of gloss over the, it must be just PTSD. Um, Can you imagine sitting with somebody who's saying, don't leave me? And, and then you and then be like you leave them God I'll leave you I'm gonna <laughs> die if I don't I, I just can't think of any hobby that would be worth this uh, it doesn't come up much in stamp collecting or uh, don't leave me right uh, I gotta get going <laughs> I'm gonna have to leave you yeah the, model railroading there's another woman on the southern side of the mountain called the German woman um, sleeping beauty on one face the German woman on the other which suggests that there's some, you know, lore gets passed from climber to climber. She's not obviously German, but she is indeed a German climber, Hannelore Schmatz. She was a woman that got exhausted during her descent in 1979. And, you know, the Sherpa guides are, are, are saying, don't, you, you can't stop. We cannot stop here for the night. We're still too high. And they're just exhausted. And they stop for the night. You know, she's still 300 meters into the death zone and she just sits down and will not get back up. So for decades, she was frozen in that spot in a sitting position, just leaning against her backpack with her eyes open and hair frozen as if blowing in the wind. Whoa. So it's essentially a, it's an image straight from a, The Shining or Game of Thrones or something. She was the first woman to die on Everest, the German woman. She was. No, I, I think very few women had attempted to summon. I mean, 79, that's only, that's like 25 years after uh, Hillary, not much more. Um and the thing about these uh, native guides, who are, who are always called Sherpas, even if they're not ethnically Sherpas, that's just the name for these, there's maybe four or 500 of these people who live in the area and climb professionally because you can make, you can make 10 times the national average. You know, if these people work a full season, they can make $5,000. $5,000. In a country where, you know, that's 10 times the average annual wage. Um, but these people who climb multiple times, they may be passing people they climbed with. You know, they, they may have been on the expedition where, you know, that, that led to these bodies. And there have been cases where we, we know it's traumatic to see them. Um, maybe there's some kind of gallows humor or however climbers deal with the effects of, of seeing people who didn't survive. But there is a case from 2010 where a Belgium man saw a dead climber and he said... No, that's it. I'm, I'm not even going to try to summit. Really, he, being brought face to face with the mortality and the risk involved was not. He couldn't do it. Huh. Well, and I wonder. So there's only one documented case of someone that was close to the summit and saw one body too many. Well, maybe maybe there are others where that's a contributing factor, but nobody ever says that's their thing. Right. But I don't think it's that. To me, that doesn't seem like wussing out. I mean, that's that's a pretty good reason not to climb Everest. Yeah. It's littered in dead bodies. And I thought, what is even the point of this? Because there, I wonder if there's a lot of that as the conditions get bad and the snow and ice move in and you realize it's just a crapshoot, whether there's going to be an avalanche or not. Is there a moment of, what am I doing? I Why just, did I come here? I was just doing this for some weird ego reason and I, it's gone from me now. <laughs> I would just like to go home. Maybe that's what you take with you when you leave is a better knowledge of self and not needing to be propped up by that kind of flimsy accomplishment. I mean, I, I, I'm always intrigued by people who truly are addicted to this style of adventure, right? Someone who has summited every 10,000 meter mountain in the world 
And when they have a list like that, that to me that just makes it seem like a compulsion. Like they're they're box tickers, right. you know, like they've got to they've, they've got to collect them all. Right. But obviously there is some kind of a rush seeking personality, right? That's uh most most studies of people who do this kind of stuff focuses on just the feeling that you're really alive when you're pushed to the limit like that. But I saw somebody push back against that and write scholarship about how um, it's they're more they're more control freaks. Uh-huh. And ironically, being in a situation where they know there's no way to control is actually very freeing for them. In the real world, they're just constantly frustrated by the kind of uh, mastery they don't have over every situation. It's sort of the appeal of a dominatrix for <laughs> uh, a very successful business person. I want Everest to, <laughs> to put their, me up in a hotel room and just kick my ass. Put their spiky heel, put Everest spiky heeled boot right on the center of my forehead. It's funny. It's just, it's, it's a void where their, their control freakness just goes away, I guess. Huh. The most famous of the bodies on Everest is called Green Boots. Uh, Green Boots was first spotted in 2001, curled up in a cave on the Northeast Ridge. And of course, named for the bright green boots he was wearing. Um, And it's clear from the records and what he's wearing that this is somebody from uh, the 1996 blizzard on Everest. I think it's the one, it's the one John Krakauer wrote about in Into Thin Air. There's some terrible year on, uh, on Everest where so many people died. This is clearly somebody from a, an Indian, Indo-Tibetan border police expedition. You know, a bunch of people who, guys who worked up there and decided to, to do the climb. But the funny thing about Green Boots, who has been seen by hundreds of people since he wandered into the cave in 1996 and never came out, is that no one knows who he is. He's often assumed to be Sewong Paljor, a member of that expedition. But it's also possible that he is Dorje Morup. Someone from the same, exp- you know, another Nepalese guy from the same expedition. Nobody actually knows huh. who this is. And, uh, and there's an interesting danger to these bodies up there that you wouldn't think of. Um, Green Boots' uh, presence in that cave led directly to the 2014 death of a British climber named David Sharp, who wandered into the same cave for shelter. And people passing, many people passed by and saw him sitting and slowly dying and they did nothing because they thought, oh, that's Green Boots. There's, I, I know there's a guy on the snow in this cave. Huh. Uh, any, if they had not known that there was a body in that cave, any of those people could have stopped and helped him, but nobody did. If you look at pictures of Green Boots, the ropes, the guide ropes for other climbers really just go right past him. It's not like you're looking and seeing Green Boots over to the, the side. Distance. You're really stepping right over his boots. His namesake boots. Yeah, what do you think about the idea of giving these nick, giving these bodies nicknames? I mean, it's it seems dehumanizing, right? Well, but at, at, at the point at which you are suffering from oxygen deprivation and struggling to put one foot in front of another, you're going to end up also in an environment where there are very few sort of uh, yeah, markers, fixed landmarks, right? right? To be able to see these green boots. Maybe they've been useful too. Maybe maybe they've saved lives. But I can't imagine being the son of green boots or the friend of green boots and have to, I, I, I imagine you probably don't go on the web and search for pictures of bodies on Everest if you've lost somebody there. Even if in the moment you're too wrapped up in your own immediate problems to think about the existential implications of being surrounded by all these bodies, you have to think about it when you're planning the trip or when you get back. 
right? Right. I mean, you have to grapple with the fact that uh, maybe that's part of the appeal that so, uh, that you you got out and they didn't. So my understanding is, in recent years, um, some of these bodies have mysteriously disappeared. Ones that could not have just been blown away. Yes. Since that BBC report was published, some of these bodies have gone missing. And I guess there's some speculation that it's China cleaning up the border from their side, huh. uh, cl you know, cleaning up the bodies from, from their side of the peak. Uh -huh. um, but again, it's hard to say, you know, the reports you get are so confused that you really realize just what kind of a twilight stumble it must be up there for people low on oxygen and disoriented and every, you know, pushed to their limits in every conceivable way. You know, there were multiple reports that Green Boots was missing from 2014 on, but then he was seen in 2017. Really? Yeah. In the same location? Uh, maybe slightly down the face, maybe. Oh, yeah. huh. So, you know, so what are we to think? That he was covered with snow and rocks, other climbers thought they were in the right location and they weren't, or, um, you know, again, moves with movement of the rock and the wind and the snow. I, I don't know. It, it really does seem like maybe the kind of thing you can't understand till you actually go up there. Well, and, and I, there are so few places in the world where technology doesn't allow us to sort of arrive and clean up the mess. Anywhere else, six hours later, there'd be a bunch of sheriff deputies pu pulling up in their vans and, right. and taking care of the problem. Or coming in in a helicopter or a submarine or some kind of, some sort of machine. But here, there's just... There's no way to get there and no amount of oxygen. I mean, I guess you could go, you could climb in a pressure suit, right? You could get it, you could get into like a, a big old timey diver suit. Yeah. Walking up Everest. Where you were able to maintain pressure over your body so that oxygen, you were able to process oxygen. I wonder if anyone has, I'm sure there's some orthodontist somewhere who's like, get me a pressure suit. Is it, are they portable? Like, would you just have to have an extremely long extension cord? How could you create a atmosphere? Yeah, a maybe, bottle of wine, maybe some battery powered, like like one hundred nine volt batteries all over the suit that are just sort of pressurizing you. It seems like it would be extremely heavy and unwieldy, whatever yeah. that option is. Yeah, but yeah, it's weird. Even though it's a place where I guess you know hundreds of people go some years, it's just tantalizingly out of reach and out of our control. Even for something as important to us as funeral rites. And maybe that's the appeal. And that concludes a thing where Ken sent it to me via email, not text. Here we go. And that concludes the bodies of Mount Everest. Entry 138.JE1316, certificate number 7505 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in our era, I never have Part it noise. open. <laughs> I'm going to start emailing it to you with the full text <laughs> below it. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project. You cannot reach the lofty summits of these social media accounts because they remain in the death zone. We assume Everest <laughs> is still climbable, but we hope that these uh, platforms do not. Do not linger in the low oxygen environment of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Because, boy, there's a lot of bodies there, too. <laughs> You're... A lot of us never got out. 
Your body cannot process the oxygen at at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. It is an avalanche, right? Yeah. Twitter's a, Twitter's a never-ending avalanche. That's right. Of stuff coming at you till you just tune out and sit down and say, I can go no further. And they're like, this is the death zone. Keep moving. Get out. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Ken is not. Although secretly Ken is. He just lurks. If I summit Everest, I will finally post photos on Instagram. It'll be my, my first Insta thing. I don't know any of the Instagram words. It'll be a latergram Insta or a thing. boomerang or a, I don't know any of these. A vine. It'll be a vine. Yes. You might be, you might be the last vine star. Six seconds in the death zone starring Ken Jennings. Uh, you can email us, which is a form of, um, of written communication that is not in the death zone. I'm not really written. It's in the it's like, ones and zeros. Yeah. It's in the snore zone. Although sometimes, <laughs> 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 really, email, your, your gripe with email is that it bores you. Uh, although yeah, sometimes we get great uh, emails from people and uh, they, that transcend and transact the border between space and time. Uh, our email address is omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Uh, we highly recommend you go to the Futurelings group on Facebook, uh, which is a strangely pressurized environment where people can breathe freely up on the summit of Facebook. It's really lovely there. Smart people having fun talking about mail trucks. It is a nice little base camp. It's as far up face ca- Facebook as you want to go. That's right. Uh, and you can uh, mail us things. Now, this is very confusing because I periodically do hear from people that they're, they have trouble finding us at this address, but I think it other people manage to get packages through. Like stuff bouncing? Yeah, or- yeah people get stuff back. I don't know what... What can be done? You need to go down to the office there in Shoreline, Washington, and, and uh, grab somebody by the pull shirt somebody collar. out of a mail truck yeah. by the scruff of their of their postal uniform and say, "Look, Mac. Look, Mac. Listen, buddy. Look, Chief. A Look, lot of my pal. stuff's bouncing. Yeah. I don't know what you're doing with box five five seven four four, but I need you to up your game. Five five seven four four. That's P.O. Box. Write it clearly. Five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington, which didn't used to be an incorporated town, but now is because times change. Nine eight one five five. Listeners, from our vantage point uh, in your distant past, you stand uh, on a lofty peak, Everest-like staring out over all you survey, but we do not. We are in the Western Coombe. We have no idea how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray that whatever cataclysm awaits us may never come. But if the worst comes soon, like an ice avalanche off the North Call, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to once again be hired as your Sherpa guides for another expedition into the omnibus. Thank you.